0: Good morning, I am Pastor Jay, and I'm going to do something I did in the first service. I said I was going to pull a quick audible. Um, I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again because it is such a profound uh, experience for Becky and I. Some of you know we've had a chance to travel a bit here and there over the years. Becky and I have had the privilege, opportunity, whatever you want to call it, to be in a lot of different kinds of of religious worship experiences. We have been at Hindu temples, multiple ones in different countries. We've been in a number of mosques, even during Friday prayers in in a number of countries. We have been in several Buddhist temples, Confucian temples, Shinto temple, and on and on. I'll tell you what we see and what we don't see in all of those situations. We see very sincere people Precious people, made in the image of God, worshiping false gods. What we don't see? Joy. And that's never been, there's never been an exception. We have never seen joy in a Hindu temple, ever, or in a mosque, or in a Buddhist temple, or a Shinto temple, or a Confucian temple. And we were talking this morning and said, the joy of the Lord is here today. And that is an indication that the true and living God's word and what he brings in a life is the only source of joy in the universe. And one of my prayers for today was is that as we all drove here, whether you're saved or not, there would be a heightened expectation of God's presence on our campus. And so, for whatever it's worth, the Christian truth, the God of the Bible brings joy, especially when His people come together. With that, as I said in the first service, I invite you to turn to an extremely joyless chapter, (laughs) but a very important chapter in the Word of God. In fact, the focus of this chapter is not specifically homosexuality. However, Of the number of passages in the Bible that address it, this is one of the clearest in the entire scriptures, especially the New Testament. So that will come up today. Shame on the church. We're currently in a four-month series in this letter. Some call it 1 Corinthians, some call it 1 Corinthians. Let's recap for a moment. Corinth was in southern Greece. It is still there today. There's ancient Corinth. There's modern Corinth. It's a beautiful area the world, Corinth was a bustling seaport. It actually sat on what we would call an isthmus. You know what an isthmus is? It's a small strip of land like Panama that has water on both sides, multiple seaports. Here, Roman power met Greek culture and mingled with Oriental mysticism and Gnostic worship. Corinth was postmodern before it was even cool to be postmodern. This was the quintessential postmodern culture. It was also a corrupt city by virtually any moral standards. The sex was perverted. The economy was corrupt. The courts were corrupt. politics were cutthroat, and the religions were made to order. And it was here in this cauldron of sensuality and syncretism that a church was born, Church was born in about 51 or 52 AD, one of the very first churches in Europe, and it was started by the Apostle Paul. Might have had a few others around him, but he was the one who instigated, and he began to pastor it for a season. Then after a year and a half, he moved on, crossed the Aegean Sea, about two, 300 miles over to modern-day Turkey in the huge megatropolis of Ephesus. It wasn't long after being in Ephesus that he began to hear very disturbing reports coming from this new young church in Corinth, southern Greece. And very quickly he learned they were going off the rails. They were being absorbed into their culture around them, which was very depraved, dark, and, de- and, and perverted. And they were, they were a train wreck. And so a series of letters began. Two of those letters the Holy Spirit saw fit to include in the canon of Scripture And we call those 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, we know there's more than these because in chapter 7, starting next Sunday, Paul is going to actually refer to previous correspondence. In fact, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now for the matters you wrote about. We don't have that letter. But it's clear previous correspondence went on. But only 1 and 2 Corinthians are inspired Scripture. And so that is why they are in our Bible. That brings us to chapter 6 where Paul is continuing to address very serious sin that's plaguing this church. And he's going to hit two specific sins in this chapter that have to do with bad relationships. So, here they are. In verses 1 to 8, if you have a sermon outline there, you'll see the first thing he confronts is he's confronting these people, both true Christians and false Christians in this church, for settling disputes with each other and dragging each other into courts, secular courts, for even the most trivial things. And then verses 9 to 20 he's going to confront them for defiling their bodies through sexual sin of a variety of kinds. So first of all, disputes in the courts, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 if you'd follow. The problem here is pretty straightforward, seems like a number of the people in this church were suing each other at the smallest drop of a hat, running to the courts and going at it legally. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were going to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Paul wrote this in Greek, the word translated trivial. Some English translations say the smallest of cases. You can translate it trivial cases. Both are good translations. Do you not know, we will judge angels, how much more the things of this life? In verse 6, we get the reason, we're given the reason why the Bible forbids this. And it has to do with what it does to Christ's name. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Meaning, it's a horrible testimony, what does it say to a watching world that's lost and under the judgment of God when they look at what is called a church and see professing Christians treating each other like this? And Paul says it brings shame on the name of Christ and on the church. You should know that uh, ancient Greece was, a modern, was very similar to modern day America. You have here probably the first democracy in the history of the world, and it was rampant with lawsuits. It's like modern-day America. It's overrun with lawsuits. And so Paul is talking about that. In fact, uh, the Greek playwright Aristophanes, in one of his plays, mocking this whole thing about how many lawsuits there were, has one of his characters in that play look at a map, and he asks, where's Greece located? And when it's pointed out, he says, oh, I can't be Greece. I don't see any lawsuits going on there. That's how prevalent they were. That's how saturated they were By this. So let's be clear what Paul's not saying. It's always important. What is he saying? What is he not saying? Don't automatically assume that just because you're reading words in English, you can intuitively understand exactly what they're saying and pick up the context. Bible study needs to be a careful, disciplined thing where you're looking at the text. Trying to understand the original context, asking the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. So what what is the context here? He's not saying all government is bad. Obviously, government's ordained by God. He's not saying the secular court system is bad. We need the court system. We need it to navigate civil and criminal cases. Very important to have. In fact, good argument made. You cannot have a good, healthy civilization without some kind of legal system. That's not what he's saying. What he's rebuking here are genuine Christians suing other genuine Christians in secular courts for trivial cases or the smallest of cases. And Paul is saying, the way you're doing this and just at the drop of a hat, the slightest offense, you drag each other into the secular courts. And so he suggests there are other options. And even today we have other options. Other options. So let me give you two that he suggests. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, he suggests using a third party. One of the oldest methods known. Verses 4 and 5. He says, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Well, that's straightforward enough. Look around. Look for somebody who's wise, who's mature spiritually, who's respected by the church, who is fairly neutral as to the dispute, and ask them to get involved. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, I'm convinced this would take care of the vast majority of disputes in a local church if both parties would humble themselves and get a third person involved and do it this way. Now today, there are several options, just so you're aware, other than going to court. And along this line of using a third party. For example, negotiation. This is typically a non-legal option. Getting somebody, kind of like Paul says here, could be professional, often it's a layperson, often it's somebody right in the congregation that's respected, and asking them to sit down and help work the way through that. Make sure both sides are hearing. Encourage repentance, praying with them and helping them see the two options. It can be a tremendous benefit. Second option available today is something that we would call mediation. Usually involves an outside professional, typically is non binding legally. In our previous church in Michigan, we used this at one point. We had two staff that were just at loggerheads. It wasn't going anywhere. And so the church actually brought in a professional mediator. This mediator happened to be a former pastor who had been trained in third-party mediation. So that is a definite option. Third option is arbitration. Most arbitration is legally binding. Most arbitrators... Professionally hired. Arbitration can be non binding, but generally, depending on how it's written up, it is a legally binding option where both parties agree to present their case and then the arbitrator makes a legal ruling. Those are all ways to do something quietly and privately. The other option, Paul says, if you're not going to use a third party, is swallow your pride, forgive forget and let it go you might say well that's going to cost me a lot of money that's going to cost me this it's going to cost me that I'm going to lose face perhaps but there's worse things never forget there's a price tag to suing there's a price tag even to arbitration that's something we often don't think about it does take an emotional and psychological and spiritual toll to go through the whole process and so Paul does say this is an option verses seven and eight The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you're completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. That's the other option. Swallowing your pride... Forgiving, forgetting, and letting it go, even if it's not economically wise or makes sense on paper. It's interesting, go back to the legal option a minute of like, uh, into the court system. Today, I had a lawyer this week tell me, it's very interesting, today, if if an option has been pursued legally, and then one party decides to back out and let it go, and forgive, and just walk away, that sometimes there's a phrase actually put in to the document that says of the person walking away from the process, I'm buying, buying, B-U-I-I-N-G, I I am buying my peace. I'm buying my peace. Sometimes used as a phrase in a legal document of someone who's walking away and not going to go through the whole process, even if they might have won. I'm buying my peace. That is an incredibly biblical concept. Because, again, there's a price tag. Even if we're right of going through the whole process, what it's going to do to us, what it might do to our church, might do to our family, our marriage, the whole situation. I was thinking about this this week. I was working on this, and I thought, you know, when you look at the Bible as a whole, lots of people... We're shafted and betrayed, and lots of people betrayed, and it's, it's a, the Bible's a train wreck, generally, of personal relationships. But one individual came to mind, outside of Jesus, who perhaps has the strongest case for being abused and betrayed and, and, and treated badly, and that's Joseph in the Genesis account. One-fifth of the book of Genesis is devoted to Jacob and his son Joseph in that whole account. Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50. I want to go back to chapter 50 for a minute, if you would. I want to show you the conclusion of the matter because Joseph took this option of swallowing pride, forgiving and letting it go and actually blessing the parties that had wronged him. He chose to buy his peace. Genesis chapter 50 I know not everyone here is familiar with the Bible or the Old Testament or even who Joseph was. So let me just give you a very quick overview. Genesis described how Joseph's brothers, Joseph was one of the youngest of 12 brothers, and he was betrayed by his brothers. That's putting it mildly. They actually beat him up, threw him in a pit, and then they sold him as a slave into Egypt's system, culture, from some Ishmaelites. And off he went. They're betrayed by his brothers, hated by his brothers. Understatement. They loathed him. And they took it out on him. And off he went and in slavery to Egypt. Once he gets to Egypt, he lands in a home of a wealthy man, Potiphar. Potiphar's wife makes the moves on him sexually. Joseph turns her down. So he's falsely accused. Horribly. And then he's put in prison. And that's not even the end of the story. In prison, we're told he was forgotten. This process could have gone on for several years. Look at those words. Hated. Betrayed. Slavery. Falsely accused. Prison. Forgotten. And yet, when you come to chapter 50 and the end of the story, we see what his brothers expected. Verse 15 I think any of us would have expected this if we had done the things they did to their brother. When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they're now in Egypt. They've come down from Israel. They're down in Egypt because of a famine. They're standing in front of probably the second most powerful man on the planet. Joseph rose up to the Egyptian ranks, we're told, over a period of years after getting out of prison, became second in command to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. He now looked Egyptian, he spoke Egyptian, his brothers didn't know it was him at first and then he revealed himself. They're terrified because all he has to do is snap his fingers and they would all be executed right there. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, hey, uh, what if Joe holds the grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Wouldn't you be saying that? I would, because they really shafted him. They betrayed him, first class. And yet you come down to verses 19 and 20. What a response. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then, says it again, don't be afraid. Now, he doesn't just let him go. That's mercy. He actually moves now to grace, which is to bless somebody who's done wrong. I'm going to provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Why could Joseph do this? It goes back to his statement, am I in the place of God? Joseph understood the providence and the sovereignty of God. And this underlines a very important truth in the Bible. Folks, hear this. Young people, sooner you get this, better life's gonna go. How we respond to someone who has mistreated us is an open window into how we view God. Let me say it one more time. How you respond to someone who has mistreated you, betrayed you, lied to you, taken advantage of you, abused you, whatever, fill in the blank. How you choose to respond to that is an open window into how you view God. You say, how, how so? Because if I look at a situation and I am getting bitter and I'm getting full of resentment, what I'm really saying to God, you had no right, Lord, to do what you did, to allow what you did. You had no right to allow that situation, that set of circumstances, or that person into my life. They were operating outside of your sovereign will somehow. That's what we're saying. Understand, we're accountable for actions. Evil will be judged. And yet, God sometimes uses that in the lives of his saints to refine them and to humble them. Friends, there's a lot of angry people sitting in every single Bible preaching church in our country. Every week, There are people who sit in churches and open their Bibles, listen to sermons, sing songs, who are seething inside. It's one of the hardest sins to admit, and it's one of the hardest sins to let go of. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, if you don't forgive others for their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. What does that mean? Does it mean you're saved by forgiving others? No. It means if you're genuinely saved, one of the evidences is you will forgive others when they sin against you. That's what it means. So again, reminder, the ability to forgive requires a proper view of who God is, of God's sovereignty in our lives. And here we come, I mean, let me share one other part of this. This is a truth that a lot of Christians miss. The Bible teaches there are times when God specifically will bring an evil person into our lives as a Christian to refine and humble and shape us. Even though the evil person is going to be accountable and if they don't repent, they will be judged by God. Nonetheless, it's not as if God forgot about us. He at times takes that and ordains that for us for our own good. And this is something you will not read much in popular Christian literature today. And it's a glaring omission. When you go back and read the Puritans, they talked about this not a little bit, a lot. Men like John Flavel in his great book, The Mystery of Providence, talks about this a lot. Men like Thomas Watson or Jeremiah Burroughs in the rare jewel of Christian contentment discusses this. If we fail to see this, we will miss God's sovereign hand in our pain. And what happens to us? We get stuck. We get bitter. We blame others, we blame God, and we just become a very unhappy, miserable person. So that is the first thing this morning, and that is disputes in the court. Second sin that Paul is going to call them on the carpet for, let's go back to 1 Corinthians, is defilement of their bodies. And here, his language is, I would say, kind, but very candid and blunt verses 9 through 20 I'm going to read I'm going to start by reading verses 9 to 11 do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God the tense of the verb means ongoing wrongdoing with no intent of repenting do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And then speaking to those who truly are born again, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's point here is what? Look at the word, especially uh, 9, and again, the tense of the verbs. It's the danger of an unrepentant life of sin puts us in danger of judgment and hell. And he lists several kinds of sin here. But then in verse 9, he drills down specifically into sexual sins. Why? Because, as he's going to tell us a little later, There is something especially damaging and dangerous about sexual sin. It has an unusual ability to enslave us, blind us, and damage and destroy us. And so he's going to talk about, that's why there's so much emphasis on sexual sins, especially in Paul's writings. In verse 9, if you look at that, whatever your English translation, there are four different words used in the original Greek. Paul wrote this in Koine Greek. And he used four words in that one verse, verse 9, to describe different kinds of sexual sins. The first one is the general word for sexual immorality. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, neither the sexually immoral. That's the Greek word porneia. It's a broad word for sexual sin. Sexual immorality would cover a number of different kinds of sexual sin. Heterosexual, homosexual... Adultery, premarital sex, lust, fornication, porneia covers all of it. So if you're involved in sexual sin, anything outside of the sexual context of marriage, and you have no intent of changing, you are in danger of hellfire. Second word is adultery, straightforward. He mentions adulterers. And then at the end of verse 9, he uses two different words. Some translations combine these into one phrase, like the NIV. Some separate them. But let me give you the two different words. The one word, malakos, and that refers to generally, most New Testament scholars agree, to the passive homosexual partner. It did in Greek culture. It did. In fact, Preston Sprinkle, who was a New Testament scholar, says malakos refers to men who significantly blur gender lines and that's how it was used in first century greek culture Paul's condemning that and then the other word he uses is a compound word made up of two words two greek words put together the two greek words are the word for male not man male and bed in a sexual sense and in Greek culture, this word was commonly used for the active or the dominant homosexual partner in a relationship. That's why the NIV combines the three words or the two words as men who have sex with men or men who practice homosexuality. That's how the ESV puts it. Now, considering our culture today and Western culture and most of cultures, why is homosexuality condemned in the Bible? Sometimes you've got to go back and ask the basic question. Why is homosexual practice spoken of in such derogatory terms? And the reason is this, because it is a direct violation of God's design for the family. It's not necessarily wrong to have homosexual inclinations, just like heterosexually. Heterosexuals have all sorts of sexual temptations too. The Christian life, homosexual or not, is a life of denying oneself when, se- when se- uh, sexual temptation or any other kind of temptations knock on our door. Sometimes the gay community talks about the rest of us as if we don't have temptations. Temptation comes knocking whether you're straight or gay, it doesn't matter. The Christian life is one of saying no to all sorts of sinful temptations on a regular basis. And heterosexuals can give in just as quickly on a whole range of sins as homosexuals. The issue is homosexual behavior, that's the issue. And the reason the Bible is so clearly against it is because in the beginning God created a male and female. Jesus quotes that in Genesis, I mean in, uh, quotes Genesis in Matthew 19. Some people say, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, oh yes he did. (laughs) He's very clear when he talked about Adam and Eve and how God set up the world, he goes right back to Genesis and he says, God created a male and female. He's very clear. So let me just be clear. Our role as a church is to be clear and compassionate, to be kind and accurate and loving whenever we talk about this. Otherwise, we are putting lives in danger. Young people hear that. We are putting lives in danger when we just are quiet or actually cave in to the LGBTQ agenda. These are precious people. They deserve to know the truth in love. And speaking out accurately with compassion on LGBTQ issues is not hate speech. It is love speech. Because if you really love somebody, you tell them the truth. And that's a very important thing to grasp. The bottom line in here is you look at verses 9 through 11. Ladies and gentlemen, the stakes are incredibly high. When you look at verses like 9 through 11, why? Because the Bible is giving us in verses 9 through 11 a list of sins. They're not all sexual, but says people who practice these things without repentance will not be in heaven. That should grieve us and cause us to pray and to love them. We need to make sure we understand exactly what's being talked about here because heaven and hell are on the line. And anyone who practices the ongoing sins listed there is not going to be in the kingdom of God. Now, you might say, okay, that's the negative message. What's the positive message on sex in the Bible? It's very simple. Here it is. One, sex is a wonderful gift and invention. Who thought it up? God did. God invented sex. That shocks some Christians. God designed it to be fulfilling and enjoyable in the context of, of a man and a woman in a covenant marriage. It's the only kind of marriage God recognizes. And in that boundary, God says, I want you to enjoy it. It's a powerful thing and it's designed to cement two people together. God invented sex and it's His idea and it's beautiful, it's enjoyable in the confines of a husband and wife before God. Number two, it's only designed for that context. And that is why, because it's such a powerful thing, think of likening it to something like electricity, in the proper channels or in power lines, electricity, very helpful. Outside those proper channels, very dangerous. And it's the same thing with the gift of sex, a beautiful, wonderful invention in the right channels. Outside that, it can be very destructive and very damaging. Now, that brings us to the next paragraph. Paul is talking about not being enslaved by anything. And interestingly, he mentions sexual activity and food. Both are good things. So it's a reminder that most of the things that enslave us are good gifts from God. Gone bad. He says in 12 and 13. I have the right to do anything you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach, stomach for food, God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. But then again, Paul comes back to sexual sin. Why? Because no sin is more enslaving than sexual sin. And the more it is indulged in, the more it will dominate and take over and control a person. And Paul says there's something unusually damaging about sexual sin in verse 18. Flee from, again the Greek word, porneia, covers the whole gamut of sexual sin. Pornography, which is lethal and deadly and everywhere today. It covers lust, premarital sex, fornication, adultery, homosexual behavior. Flee all of that. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's something especially damaging about sexual sin. The great news of the gospel is God will forgive any sinner who comes and asks forgiveness. And he can help. He can rescue you if you're caught in sexual addiction. Odds are very high. I am talking to some right now who are in bondage to sexual addiction of one kind or another. You need to know the gospel is a gospel of power of the Holy Spirit who is willing to set you free if you will come to God on his terms. He loves to set sinners free. This all ties back to verses 13 to 15. Before we get to our summons, need to See something here? Paul's talking a lot about how we use our physical body. There's a lot of emphasis in this chapter about the physical body. And the question is, why is Paul so keyed in on how we use our physical bodies? Well, the reason is because of the context he's writing in. Ancient Greece, ancient Greek world for that matter, did not believe in bodily resurrection from the dead. Didn't matter what religion it was, which Gnostic called it was, what secret religious sect it might have been, or some of the mainstream Greek deities, all Greek religions agreed on one thing. The body does not survive death. In fact, the body was viewed as evil and corrupt and something to be gotten away from. That was why, historically anyways, Christians have buried their dead and pagans historically have burned their dead because the goal was liberation from the body, getting getting the soul free. That's Plato's view of the afterlife and Platonic eschatology ruled the day, you see. The goal was to get rid of the body, so a lot of Greek, most of Greek culture, all the Gnostic sects, all the Gnostic cults, they said, you know what, your body doesn't matter, you're not going to have it in the afterlife anyways, and it's just a nuisance, and it's worthless, and it's evil, material is evil, the material world's evil, so it doesn't matter how you use your body in this life because you're not going to have it in the next life anyways. So go ahead and sin sexually, abuse your life, In your body with alcohol and food and anything else because it doesn't matter. That's why you see Paul putting such an emphasis on, yes, it does matter. Your bod belongs to God. Jesus was raised physically from the dead. Every single human being, righteous or wicked, will be raised bodily from the dead. The afterlife is not invisible. It's every bit as tangible as this life for the righteous and for the wicked. That's something that just misses the radar screen of so many of God's people. It's going to be a physical afterlife. And so how I use my body in this life is very important because I'm going to have it in my next life. And how I'm using my body in this life will directly impact my reward or lack of reward in the next life. In case you have any doubt, go back to verse 9. Where Paul says, do you not know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he mentions a bunch of sins that all have to do with the body. Then in verses 14 and 15, by His power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. He will raise us also, bodily resurrection. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself, the physical body? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Or verse 20, you were bought at a price, speaking of every true Christian, therefore honor God with your bodies. Greek word soma meant the physical body. And that's why Paul put such emphasis on the physical, it was because how we behave in this life in bodily form will have a direct impact on the afterlife. All right, what's our summons today? Let's look at our summons. Number one, we have to be born again to know God. Jesus said it in John 3, couldn't have been clearer. Looking at a religious, highly esteemed individual named Nicodemus, Jesus told him he was lost, on his way to hell, and he said, you must be born again, which Nicodemus had never done. That means the gospel is repent and believe in the good news. What's the good news of the gospel? That Jesus came to lay down his life, after fulfilling the law perfectly for 33 years and to give his life as an atonement for sin and pay the price that we were to pay and to transfer his righteousness to us at the moment of saving faith in surrendering to that glorious news of the gospel that God's willing to forgive everything I've ever done if I will trust in his son and his atoning death, I can be forgiven of everything, past, present, and future. I can be transformed from the inside out Because the Holy Spirit will take residence in me and begins to do something that I could never do on my own. That is the good news of the gospel available to every single person here this morning who is alive and breathing. That's the first. Secondly, if you are genuinely a Christian, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in fact, I would say the whole letter to 1 Corinthians screams out, Remember, sin is still alive in the world, and there is an element that's still alive even in a Christian. It's been dethroned. We're no longer enslaved to it, but it's still alive, and as Paul says, and we are called to attack it in our life. Be vigilant against it. John Owen's great classic, we don't use the word much anymore, but the mortification of sin, a series of sermons Owen preached back in the 17th century based on Romans 8.13. Kill sin mortify sin in your life. I have to be vigilant. Too many of us, I myself included, we start viewing and tolerating sin in our lives, even small sins. And then that grows into tolerating big sins. I have to remind myself, Paul says, remind yourself, you're in a battle, you're in a war. And remind myself what's at stake, that if I start giving in to sin, I can destroy my marriage, I can destroy my health, I can destroy my family, I can destroy my children, I can destroy my reputation, I can destroy my mental and emotional health, I can destroy my joy, and I can destroy the lives of those around me. There's a lot at stake if I don't attack sin and kill it. I have to attack sinful tendencies and subdue sinful desires and battle idols in my life and stay vigilant. And again, this is not a heterosexual or homosexual thing. Every single Christian, regardless of their sexual orientation or the sexual temptations they may face, is called to say no to a whole range of temptations. We have to be vigilant. Third summons. This is an encouraging one. If you know Christ and as you're in the war against sin, remember you're not on your own. The Holy Spirit is alive in you. That's weapon number one. And then three more weapons, the Bible, prayer, and Christian community. When you begin to separate yourself from the Bible, when you stop praying and you stop going to church and you stop getting involved with God's people, that's when we start drifting. And if it continues, we will drift into horrible places. I need to stay tethered to this book because this is the living word of God. I need to stay tethered to prayer. I need to remember the Holy Spirit if I'm saved is alive in me and carrying me along in his power as I'm attacking sin and I need to stay in Christian community. That's where people will be successful in progressing in holiness. These, are abso- these tools are absolutely indispensable for killing sin, pursuing holiness and finding joy. Amen? Father, thank you for Paul. Paul. And this letter, even for the hard things that he says, which, frankly, today, more than 50 years ago, completely fly in the face of what's going on in our culture. Father, give us courage, compassion, but help us not to do the easy thing and say nothing or even sound like we agree when people are saying things that are clearly unbiblical and will destroy them we thank you for this church historically and the impact it's had in our community may this community see joyful believers living out lives whether celibate or in marriage of godliness and joy and may it draw many to the savior we pray in christ's name